Good morning. It's good to see you all. Please turn in your Bibles to First Chapter or First Timothy Chapter Three. First Timothy Chapter Three. Uh, before we dig into the Word, I do want to make a comment or two about last week's message um, on the topic of depression and sadness. Uh, that is a topic that is uh, hard to deal with. It's personal in many ways, um, either affecting some of us personally or those that we love. And so um, just a couple of points on that. One, your pastors are very grateful for the distinctions that that Jim made last week and for the uh, many passages and promises he gave us to help fight the lies uh, that Satan would would sow into our hearts, using the sword of spirit to fight the good fight. Um, That said, Fighting against loneliness, uh, or fighting against depression, you know, suffering under sadness, it can be a very lonely struggle, and uh, it can be very hard to stay uh, on that straight and narrow. You hear the lies of Satan all the time, and so uh, the first thing I want to say is, if that's if that's you, if that's something you struggle with, uh, your pastors want you to know that we would like to be able to walk through that with you. Uh, we don't want you to walk that road alone. So I hope you hear our invitation, that if that's you, please let us know uh, so that we can be with you through that. The other thing I'd, I'd like to state is, um, well, we heard from several of you that it was very helpful last week's message was. We also heard from a few of you that last week's message challenged you and, and, and pushed you to try to think about depression and sadness in different ways than you had before. And uh, that's a good thing, too. We want to be pressed into the Word. We want to be Bereans. We want to search the Scriptures. And so if that's something that it, it pressed you and you're trying to work through it, you're trying to think through it, um, you know that I have a, a vested interest in thinking about biblical counseling and, and the ways the therapeutic movement has, has tried to inform us, influence us. Now, I would love to be able to talk with you. I'd love to help you think through that. I'd love to share my own thoughts. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a meeting uh, in between services next week. Um, So if you're new to our our church, we have a sprawling campus here uh, with multiple buildings. Um, One, two, we have another building way back in the back, the back building. Um, And so this meeting will take place in our, I think this is east, I don't really know, uh, in that building over there. And um, it will be downstairs uh, in the uh, fireplace room uh, in between services. So if you'd like to talk more about last week's message or about that topic in between services next week, I'd be happy to meet with you and talk. All right, that said, switching to our sermon today, uh, with it we are, as Bert said, beginning a new sermon series we've entitled, We Believe. This series will consist of about a dozen sermons hitting theological uh, topics that are as taken up in our statement of faith. And so we're going to be in this for a little while uh, before we finally get back to Matthew and spend the rest of our lives there. So we've got uh, a lot to do. These are, these are the essential doctrines of our faith, and they are the denominational distinctives that unite us together in mission and in partnership. Uh, and so this is a newer statement of faith for us in comparison. In contrast, you can see this is our old statement of faith, and this is the new uh, the new has, this has zero footnotes. This one has 451 footnotes. So this got a serious upgrade, is the way I look at it. And we believe that it is a biblically robust, more historically informed, and more culturally relevant 
uh, confessional document. We are seeking to apply God's word to the lessons we've learned through history as well as to the relevant issues of our day. So um, we're excited to do this. Now, what that means is over the next three months, uh, we're going to be studying topics drawn from the statement of faith. And uh, I want to clarify here, this does not mean that every week, every Sunday, I'm going to be up here and I'm going to be asking you, please turn in your statements of faith to yada yada section or whatever, right? Like we're going to preach from the Word of God, and we're going to use the statement of faith to point us to the Word of God. It's the Word that we preach. It's the Word that gives life. It's the Word that is our final authority. What creeds and confessions do is they helpfully summarize scriptural teachings. They give us good summaries. And that way, uh, you might liken it to the moon and the sun, right? So the moon uh, gives off this beautiful, shining glory that in dark nights we're really grateful for. Uh, but as many of us probably know, the moon does not actually have any light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. It's pointing to the light of the sun in many regards. And creeds and confessions operate in a similar way. They have a, a great shining, a great beauty about them, but it's only in as much as they point us back to the true light, which is the scripture, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. So that's what we're going to be doing for a while now. Today is going to be an introductory message, and I want to show you how confessions of faith are both biblical and beneficial. And so we are calling this message today, uh, it's taken right out of our text, the sermon title is A Pillar of Truth. A Pillar of the Truth. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16, I invite you to follow along. This is what Holy Scripture says. I hope to come to you, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. May the Lord bless now the preaching and the believing of His Word. On Wednesday, August 1st, 2007, uh, during the evening rush hour in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the unthinkable happened. You may remember this, the I-35 West Mississippi River steel bridge experienced catastrophic failure. Uh, as cars made their way slowly across the heavily trafficked eight-lane bridge, the central span of the bridge suddenly gave way followed by the adjoining spans, plunging 111 commuter vehicles and 18 construction workers down 115 feet to the river below. I just tried to imagine this week what that must have been like, driving across this bridge and then all of a sudden experiencing it starting to give way under you and your car you know, jolting, jerking until you're plunging into this river. After months of investigation, it was determined that the support plates 
which reinforced the crossbeams and the pillars of the bridge, were only half as thick as they were supposed to be. The pillars that hold up bridges and buildings, if you think about it, are really life-sustaining and death-defying constructions. But we rarely think about them until they fail. I mean, just think about all the people that had driven across that I-35 West Bridge the day before. They say it was an average of 140,000 cars a day. Think of how many people just drove across that bridge, looking to the left or the right, enjoying the view, taking completely for granted that which was holding them up off the ground. And we can be just like them. We don't take a lot of notice of pillars or those things that hold up bridges and buildings. And because we take them for granted, we may miss the significance of what Paul says in our passage about the church. That we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Just one chapter earlier, Paul highlighted the significance of the truth when he writes, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants men and women everywhere to hear, to believe, and to enjoy the truth. All truth, but especially the saving truth of Jesus Christ. God desires all people everywhere to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth and under that truth, that truth which is held up for the world to see, underneath that truth, he has chosen to place a pillar, a buttress of his own design constructed for one global and eternal purpose to hold up his truth, and that pillar is the church of Jesus Christ. I don't have to tell you that we live in the midst of a culture that is sinking, you might even say plunging deeper and deeper into sin. Uh, Romans 1, if you're familiar with Romans 1, if you're not, just read it this week. Romans 1, read Romans 1, and it is a mirror on what we see happening around us every single day. The rejection of the truth of God and His righteousness, sexual and homosexual revolution, and a culture that not only accepts immorality, but now endorses it. That is the state of our nation. What is the call of our church? It is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we are called to preserve, proclaim, and protect the truth of God's word. And this is not because we are better than anybody. This is for their good. This is for their salvation. So in our passage today... Paul Paul calls us to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then in verse 16, we see him give this summary truth, this great confession of faith. The scholars will tell us that this is a short creedal statement that's obvious in the Greek where the the verbs align and the nouns align and there's a structure and a parallelism in the syntax refers to something that Paul's obviously not talking about. So he's obviously quoting from something that he's pulled into and, and he's kind of saying like, hey, I read this creed, guys, and this is good stuff. 
I imagine kind of coming across his, his desk and, and Paul saying, ha, 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 look at this. This is good. I'm going to use it. Have you ever heard what Luther said of Calvin? He, he read Calvin's Institutes and, and he wrote to a friend. He said, here is a writing with hands and feet. And I kind of imagine Paul coming across this, this uh, credo statement and saying something like it. The words he uses, though, is great indeed. Six Christological declarations that Paul says are great indeed. These are weight, weighty and glorious truths. First, he says Jesus was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation of the pre-existent Son of God. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Number two, vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit descending upon him. The Spirit empowering him for ministry. The Spirit raising him up from the dead. He is vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Angels appearing at Jesus' birth. Angels appearing to minister him throughout his ministry. Angels appearing at his resurrection to testify the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Angels appearing at his ascension to explain it. Seen by angels. Number four, proclaimed among the the nations the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our confession is, it is not contained. It is spreading to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Number five, not only is it spreading, but it is believed on in the world. Through faith and repentance, countless sinners, including myself, who were once objects of God's wrath, are now, by the grace of God, believers in Jesus Christ, belonging to Christ. He is the Savior of the world. And then fifth, or six, number six, finally he says, he was taken up in glory. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father where he was given a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Great indeed, Paul says, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed. This is the mystery that has been revealed to us. That's what mystery means in the Greek and in the Bible. It means a secret revealed. It means you didn't figure this out. You don't figure secrets out. Secrets are told to you. This is a mystery that's been revealed to us. Hallelujah. I mean, that's grace upon grace. That should humble us. That should fill us with gratitude. That should be a mercy that we are, we are amazed that we get and we want to preserve it. We want to protect it but not in a little box where we hide it under a bushel. No, 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 no. We let it shine. We proclaim it. This is the truth. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This was a creedal statement, and there are others like it that appear in both the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, Some of the better known ones are the, the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or in Paul's writings, you have the various trustworthy sayings. He says, this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Like 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. These kinds of confessional statements appear in Scripture and they also appear throughout church history. As far back as the second century, Christians have sought to summarize the truths of scriptures, again, not to supplement them or to supplant them, but to summarize these truths. 
So from the early church, we have the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian defini- definition. Now later, from, we have the classic Protestant confessions like the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and the 39 Articles and the Westminster Standards and many others. The point is, since biblical times on up through today, the church has written creeds and confessions that have been of great benefit to the life and health of the church. Clear, compelling, and celebratory articulations of the glorious truths of God's word. They have been read publicly, they have been memorized privately, they have been treasured broadly, and the point for this, well, this point is, and they are inspired from the example of scripture. We have the biblical model of how these are helpful right in our passage today. And we still continue to confess and celebrate those same great truths in our church. So, confessions of faith, creeds, biblically good, biblically right, biblically modeled for us, which brings me then to consider with you, what are their benefits? What are the benefits of this? So, I have five reasons why they are beneficial, five benefits of creeds and confessions, and the first is, a confession of faith reinforces our identity as a church. A confession of faith, COF, if you need to make it smaller, because I'm going to keep saying it over and over again, reinforces our identity as a church. So here is something you can be thankful for. We are not the pillar and buttress of gifted leaders or dynamic personalities. And we are not the pillar and support of creativity or innovation. And y'all are sitting in pews. Obviously, we're not very creative or innovative. We are also, and most certainly not, the pillar and buttress of meeting people's felt needs. Rather, we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. We exist by and for the truth. We are devoted to, as Acts 2 says, the apostles' teachings. We hold to the unpopular idea in our day that doctrine matters. It is important. And a good church is first and foremost a church with solid doctrine. Sadly, so many Christians today no longer know what to look for in a church. Uh, their criteria might include you know, the church having the right feel, whatever that is. Uh, it might include something like um, the music style that they prefer, uh, a service that is not too long, or sermons that aren't too long. That's you, you're at the wrong church. Just give you that one right now, <laughs> heads up. Uh, the preacher has to tell good stories, the children's ministry has to be fun, the youth group has to be active. And many of these things in and of themselves are not bad things, right? Except for the short sermons one. Besides that, most of them are not necessarily bad things. But seriously, how sad and tragic it is when the very thing the church is meant to hold up and draw attention to in this world, sound doctrine, solid truth, takes a backseat to those kinds of things. We are unapologetically a confessional church here, which means we are brought together by a personal confession of faith in Jesus Christ and a corporate confession of faith in sound doctrine. Now, that does not mean that you have to uh, personally sign off on all 451 footnotes in this document. 
Now, that's not what we are asking of you here if you're to be a member of this church. Um, the pastors do have to sign off on those things. You do not have to sign off on all those things, although I hope that you will largely sign off on most, if not all of them, because these are the doctrines we teach and uphold here. But if you are looking to become a member here or being a member here, what you are saying is, I want to be a part of a church that takes Scripture very seriously. I want to be part of a church that knows its role and calling in the world to be a pillar and support of the truth because that is a part of our identity. Benefit number two, a confession of faith guards us against false teachings. A confession of faith guards us against false teachings. Uh, If you'll look at our passage again and just go to the next verse in chapter four here, you see Paul warning those who will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Or if you were to go back and look at chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that he left Timothy in Ephesus so that he might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So we must be careful that we do not fall into the schemes of the evil one, being led astray by those who teach to our itching ears the things we want to hear. And we all want to hear certain things. Confessions of faith can guard us against false teachings. This is illustrated in the history of the church um, in many ways, but one of them would be the most celebrated creed of the first 500 years of the church, which is the Nicene Creed, uh, adopted in 325. Uh, What happened was a clergyman of the church in Alexandria named Arius denied that Jesus was fully and eternally God. He denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He wrote extensively, gained a huge following, so that many in many churches around the world at that point in time, uh, were influenced by him and questioning the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, if you're familiar with the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and, and Luther hammering in the door, and, and you know, us coming back to biblical orthodoxy, um, if you're not familiar with church history, that's just one of many Reformations. Uh, there were many times where the church was, was nearly lost, a solid doctrine was nearly lost, but that a few courageous men, uh, men of God's word, uh, worked and fought to keep us centered on Scripture. And so this was one of those moments. This was what historians have called a kind of Gettysburg moment in church history, where uh, to lose this battle would be to lose the war, and we would not be Christianity anymore. And so a council was convened in Nicaea. Leaders were gathered, theologians were gathered to define carefully the divinity of Jesus, And they did so in the famous words of that creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. 
So in that, you had particularly that phrase, one substance with the Father that rejected the heart of Arius' teachings and produced a litmus test to protect the church from this false doctrine. And since then, the Nicene Creed had become an invaluable resource to the church, standing through the centuries as a clear testimony to our faith in the uniqueness and eternity of Jesus, eternal deity of Jesus Christ. So that was, that was the battle fought in the fourth week. What is the battle fought in our day? What's the, there are many battles being fought in our day. What's the most prominent battle being fought in our day in regards to biblical fidelity? I would say that it has, it, everything that surrounds sexual identity, practices, and preferences. We now live in a day where marriage has been redefined, where family, as defined by a husband, a wife, and children has been labeled an obstruct or an um, uh, oppressive construct. Sexual intimacy has been detached from the safety of marriage. Terms like cisgender, sexual dysphoria, and gender fluidity are the phrases of a revolution that has swept through our dictionaries and our schools, our workplaces, and our counseling offices. And even in churches, we find the champion of terms like gay, Christian, and sexual minority. And so into all this, what could be more timely, what could be more necessary than a confession of faith that is willing to speak boldly the truth of God into these situations, that reiterates the biblical view of what is true and unchanging, and that is exactly what our statement of faith does in numerous sections, including one entitled, Man as Male and Female. Our statement of faith declares, gender as designated by God through our biological sex is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Friends, we need statement of faith that speak into the battles of our day. And another section of our statement entitled Marriage, Sexuality, and Singleness. And yes, as Merrick pointed out a couple of weeks ago, uh, our statement of faith actually even speaks to singleness, which I don't know of another statement of faith that does, and so I love that about our statement of faith. But in that section, our statement of faith explains God instituted marriage as the union of one man and one woman who complement each other in a one flesh union that ultimately serves as a type of the union between Christ and his church. This remains the only normative pattern of sexual relations for humanity. And with both those statements I read to you, you have like dozens of footnotes with scriptures uh, for your reference and study. Friends, the point is the sirens of our age call. They sing a seductive song. And if we listen to them, they will make shipwreck of our faith. And so like Ulysses, we must bind ourselves to the mast of God's truth. We must hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And he, through his word, will guard us, will keep us, and he will bring people to us who need a solid rock to stand on and need sanity in the midst of all this sexual confusion. And we can be to them light and hope and goodness.
Number three, a third benefit, a confession of faith unites us around what's most important. It unites us around what's most important. It was also in chapter one of Paul's letter to Timothy here that Paul urged Timothy to charge people not only not to follow doctrines different than the one he taught, but also to be on guard against peripheral matters. What Paul describes in his day as myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. What Paul is getting at here is that truth is often abandoned not through denial, but through displacement. More of you should have been like, oh. Because that was one of my favorite lines in this message. So sometimes the Lord helps me write, like, yeah, I'm going to repeat it. I'm just, but now I'm building up anticipation, like, because some people were falling asleep. Because I stopped yelling for a minute. And so this helps them, like, oh, he said something important, and so I should be ready to write this down. So that's what, this, this, is what the, this is what the preacher does right now. So here it is again. I'm going to build up some more anticipation. Because I mean this very pastorally. Um, I think this is some of you. Like, you may wonder, like, is he thinking about me? Yes, I probably am. But, but pastorally, lovingly. And I'm not immune to it, either. That's why there's a team of pastors. And that's why there's all of you. So here it is again. Truth is often abandoned, not through denial, but through displacement thereby distorting what's most important. Distorting what's most important, what's most central, what's most essential. So I love going to the beach. I'm a beach guy. I love the hot sun, like really right now with this weather. And with, I'm just, I ache for warmth. I love sitting on the sun. I love the fresh breeze. I love playing with the sand in my kids, or playing with the, in the sand with my kids. Get that right. And I really enjoy taking my kids out into the waves. Like, I love, like, those big waves, and I get the little ones, and we just crash into the waves. And I love taking the older ones by the hand, and we just we jump into those waves, and I can throw them into them entirely. So I love playing out in the waves, and... And, and just spending a long time out there doing all that stuff. And, 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 but th- this always happens to me when we go to the beach. Uh, you know, I'm doing that. I'm out in the water, and I'm playing that. And, and I look back to check on Jenny and, and our stuff you know, back on the beach, and, 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 and they're not there. And I'm like, where'd they go? Jenny took our stuff and left. She grabbed the umbrella, and, and she's gone. I'm like, what happened to her? But, of course, Jenny didn't move. I moved, right? Because the current pulled me down. I wasn't noticing. I didn't pay attention to it. I was just playing in the waves. I just minded my own business. I was just having fun. But the current slowly moved me down. I was drifting on it. Drifting is one of those weird things whereby by doing nothing, somehow you're moving. 
If you're not constantly checking the beach and actively working against the current, you'll end up somewhere you don't intend to be. This happens at the beach, and friends, it happens with us in our doctrines as well. This is actually one reason why, as a kind of aside, this is actually one reason why Sundays are so important. This is why Sundays and the preaching of God's word is so important. You may have noticed already, you know, this is, I'll let you in on a little secret here. You may have noticed, I don't normally say anything new. Have you noticed that? Like, it's just a little secret between us pastors, we think. But, but like, you grow up in the faith long enough and you're just like, I know this. Exactly. We need reminded. And the things that are most important need to be continually held up for us. I need to pound the same great truths and the same important warnings and the same disciplines of grace over and over and over and over again because we are prone to wander. We are prone to drift. So Sunday morning is not usually about coming here and hearing new things. It's about hearing old, ancient, great truths expounded again, hopefully in such a way that you're saying, oh yeah, that's most important, and hopefully in such a way that your heart is stirred up and you say, oh yeah, I am thrilled by this, more than other passing lesser things. Listen to the warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, we must, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let me ask you, where are you tempted to drift? Where are you tempted to major on minor doctrines? Where are you tempted to you know, kind of become a personal crusader for this interest or this political cause or... Where do you get into myths and conspiracies that only lead to speculation? Has politics captured your heart? So you get more fired up listening to a political commentary than you do a sermon about the Trinity, the nature of God. Where are we tempted to drift away from the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And brothers and sisters, realize this too. When we drift away from that, we drift away from each other. Because these are the things that ought to unite us. That we ought to share passion for. That we build each other up with. And this is one way our statement of faith can serve us because it calls our attention to the essentials of the Christian faith and the denominational distinctives that unite us together on mission for Jesus Christ. This is what we build our church on. And this is what we unite in mission and fellowship over. All right, number four. Number four, confession of faith helps us to grow in maturity, to grow in maturity. Paul says here in verse 15 that How we behave as the household of God, the church, is connected, verse 16, to what we believe to be true. How we behave is connected to what we believe. Now, that said, good theology does not guarantee a godly life. 
Like we've all known people, pastors, theologians, lay people who have possessed great theology, good theology in many ways, but they live like their father, the devil. You find out horrible sin in their life. So it's no guarantee. Nevertheless, for those who want to live a godly life, good theology is not an option since Jesus tells us we are sanctified by the truth and your word is truth, John 17, 17. So what we believe shapes how we live and helps us to grow in maturity. And I had more in this point that I had to cut because I like long sermons, but not obnoxiously long sermons. And so I'm going to cut a little bit of this, but I do want to tell you this story from theologian and scholar B.B. Warfield. He tells this story of this general officer of the United States Army. Uh, This was a few decades ago. The officer was in this large city overseas, uh, in this time of, of intense excitement and, and violent rioting in the city, uh, the streets would often be overrun, um, even daily, by dangerous crowds. So it's just this place of chaos. And one day, the, the officer, this officer, uh, is walking down the street and he observes a man approaching him, not personally, but walking by him, of what he describes remarkable calmness and firmness whose very demeanor inspired confidence. That's often what Jenny says about me, but (laughs) this isn't her story, this is Warfield's. So impressed, she's serving downstairs, but man, that's gonna get something later. Um, So impressed was this officer with this man's bearings amid the surrounding uproar that when he passed him, the officer turned to look back at the man only to find that the stranger had also done the same, turned around and looked at him. And observing each other, the man, the stranger, immediately walks up to the officer, pointed his forefingers into the officer's chest, and without preface says, what is the chief end of man? For those of you who know, first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the answer is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The officer immediately replied that. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, said the stranger, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your look. And the officer said, that was just what I was going to say to you. Friends, knowing is for living. Sound doctrine is the foundation for good living and godly lives. And when our theology functions, the truth affects us. It affects how we live, even in the midst of of perverse crowds, and a chaotic generation. All right, number five. Last one. A confession of faith produces a life of praise. A life of praise. Some Christians are wary of confessions because they have seen and have even experienced how tradition can become lifeless. How religion can can become rote. Uh, How people can just go through, they they say the right things, but they're really just going through the motions. And that can't happen. But scripture would lead us to expect that a genuine devotion to sound doctrine should make us sing. Doctrine produces doxology, worship. And so we see this even in our passage here. Let me bring out some of the context. Uh, Paul was writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus. That's where the church was. And Ephesus was famous for its temple to Artemis. 
It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In this temple, at this temple, uh, in their worship, for hours the worshipers would confess, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would just chant this over and over and over. Great, 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 great. And so as Paul considers here the confession of faith that he is about to quote for Timothy, he's getting all excited about it. He's, he's going to detail the mystery of Jesus' incarnation and the power of his resurrection and the spreading fame of his name and the glory that he now reigns in. Paul can't help say, well, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Over and against Artemis and all that over there, let me just tell you, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He is swept up into the greatness and the wonder and the glory of the truth of Jesus Christ. And we see the same thing happen back in chapter one after he quoted one of those familiar sayings, another creedal statement. He immediately launches off into this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Doctrine produces doxology. Or over in Romans, after Paul has spent 11 chapters contemplating the sovereign grace of God to sinners like you and me. I mean, he just can't help it. He just bursts out in praise, declaring, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Man, the goal of good doctrine is not dead tradition or stiff formalism, but it is knock your socks off worship. And that is why at this church, we don't have really loud music and you softly kind of sing your little words in your pew that's so loud, or seats, that's so loud and you're not really hearing everybody else. No, we sing loud and long. And people raise their hands or get on their knees or do a little charismatic shuffle or whatever it is. Because, not because it's like this is what we do here. No, because orthodoxy thrills our souls. These are great truths. And so we are either responding in faith. We are saying, yes, says my soul. Or we are singing in faith. This is what my, this should thrill my soul. And so I'm calling myself to attention here. Solid doctrine thrills the soul and makes us sing. It fills us with wonder and joy and gratitude. It makes us want to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the angels. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Doctrine leads to devotion. It leads us to praise. So as we conclude here this morning, I want to give you two final thoughts. God has made the church to be a pillar of the truth. And I want to ask you to consider how you are contributing to its, if I can make up a word, pillarness. 
Okay, not my best one, but go with me. This pillar is only as strong as each of you are. So are you a thin and unreliable support plate waiting to break under pressure? Or do you intentionally devote yourself to the study and the love and the protection and the proclamation of sound truth? Do you come in to Sundays looking for a word that tickles your ear, that fancies your fashion? Or do you come in devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching? to sound doctrine, to the words of Scripture? Do you let it renew your mind and renew your priorities? Are you actively applying the preaching of God's Word into your life? How's your own private study of Scripture going? Are you doing well in your devotions? How about the reading of good books, theological books? Do you make time for that? Or is all your free time spent with maybe perfectly allowable but lesser ambitions? God strengthens the pillar of this church by strengthening your grasp and your appreciation of the truth of the word. Final thought then. It is our hope and confession, or our hope and our prayer that this confessional statement that we are looking at and we own, and that this sermon series that we're going to be going through will shape us as a church, that it will educate us, it will renew us, it will inspire us, so that the great doctrines we are charged with upholding do not become peripheral in our hearts and minds. Instead, may the Lord make us a church filled with theologically informed believers who treasure God's truth, are sanctified by it, actively spread it into this world that needs it like good salt, and who live for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, let our confession be, we believe the great doctrines of Scripture are true. We believe God is great and greatly to be praised. We believe that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. We believe that he has rescued us through his death on the cross and reconciled us to God. We believe that God's own spirit gives us life and empowers us for ministry. This we believe. So let the church proclaim, this is our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for delivering to us that faith once and all delivered to the saints, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the precious word, this lamp to our feet, this guide to our path, O oh Lord. Lord, we want to be a church of, of sound. Do- we, I'm hoping to hear amens in people's hearts. We want to be a church of sound doctrine. but we don't ever want to be proud over our doctrine. These are mysteries that have been revealed to us. We didn't discover any of this. We didn't figure this out. Anything we see and know 
has been graciously given to us, Lord. We just want to be grateful and we want to be faithful. So Lord, help us to be faithful to the sound doctrine that you delivered to us, Lord, for our own sake, but also for the sake of this world and all its chaos. Like you, we desire all men and women to be saved everywhere and to come into knowledge of the truth. We ask that you would do that, Lord. And God, I also pray that you would help us to be faithful to this, this good doctrine, not only for our sake and for the sake of the world, but for the sake of our children and our grandchildren. God, help us preserve and protect for them good and solid doctrine they can build their lives on. Not like, this, not like the man who builds on the sand, so that when the storms come, it's all washed away, but like those who build on the rock, so when the storms come, the house stands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.